following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Okay, good morning again. If you have your Bible, please open it to Isaiah chapter 9. Before we study God's word together, we're going to pray for those who are sick. Particularly, we're going to pray for both Jake and John. First Sunday on the job. I don't know, I don't know if I believe in coincidences. So we'll pray for their recovery. John texted me this morning, told me he seems to maybe have a stomach bug. Jake is dealing with a cough. Both obviously considered it wise to stay home and not spread, uh, but we want to pray for them and their, their recovery and, of course, um, for their encouragement this morning. Anybody else to pray for that, I, that I'm missing, that we know of? Let's pray for those, those brothers and sisters. Father, we commit this time now to you and to the hearing of your word. It is a privilege to gather and to hear it, to sit under it, to learn from it, to be encouraged together as a church. Uh, Lord, but we remember those now and pray for them who cannot gather with us, particularly for Jake as he is dealing with the cough that he's had come on over the last several days. Lord, would you give him rest and recovery and encourage him now as he studies the word and, Lord, prays and intercedes for us and for your people as we study God's word. Pray for John and for his family that whatever he may have caught would be uh, mild in comparison and over swiftly that it wouldn't spread to the rest of his family, but Lord, if it does, as these things are wont to do, that, that we would be able to love them and serve them as a church, care for them, provide for them in many ways, both spiritually as we pray, but maybe physically as we provide meals or other comforts. Uh, Father, would you protect the children from getting sick and uh, would encourage that family as well. We also pray for Adam and Kathy as they travel back from their their holiday, God, would you give them uh, encouragement too, perhaps as they pray together and study God's word in their own way this morning or when they're safely back at home. We're grateful for family and for the time to spend with our loved ones. We're grateful to gather here with our loved ones that we may learn again from your word. So we ask, God, that you would bless this time as we turn our attention to your way and that you would fill our hearts with joy and gladness and that you would exalt yourself over us. We pray, ask now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we'll begin in Isaiah chapter 9. We'll also be in Isaiah chapter 11 as well. Over the next several weeks leading up to 
our Christmas Eve service, we'll study from the book here of Isaiah. Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel because it contains so much truth about Christ. That is, when you read the book of Isaiah, you can't help but see through all of the historical nuances and the talk of judgment and God's mercy, clear pictures of Christ emerge as jewels and diamonds would emerge from a destitute place. In the midst of Isaiah's prophecies of judgment and of justice comes a picture of a a, a Messiah who would come and answer all the longings that Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah particularly would have as he speaks to them, as they are drawing closer and closer to their own judgment of God, the captivity of Assyria, and speaks to them in their hope, longing for a redeemer and a rescuer and a king that would establish them as a nation once again. Isaiah is not just what we'd call the fifth gospel, but in and of itself a sort of microcosm of the Bible, all of Scripture. You may know that there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. Now, those chapter divisions are not necessarily inspired, but we see in them this sort of natural breakdown from what resembles Scripture, both promises made and even promises kept. In that sense, Isaiah is the prophet's prophet, and he has words for us this morning in this season of Advent. And we're going to stay fairly high level this series. We're not going to go into depth of the book of Isaiah in this series, and I, ha- I hope by God's grace we'll spend more time in the book of Isaiah in a longer format in the years to come. But over the next several weeks, we're going to see main characters emerge from Isaiah that ultimately find their amen and their fulfillment in Jesus. That's the, that's the sort of direction we're headed, just right out the gate. As we read and study through the book of Isaiah over the next three, four weeks, we'll see characters emerge that are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Now, an important thing to know about this is that in Isaiah's mind, those are not necessarily all the same person. We could not have expected the prophets to have fully understood that what they are writing was really about Jesus, who would fulfill all of these prophecies. Peter tells us this much in his own letter when he says that the prophets inquired and prayed to God that they would have some understanding of what it is that they wrote. And the Lord tells them it's not for them, but for us. So we have the privilege of insight that even Isaiah didn't have. Though he could see the future, we have with greater clarity the ability to see how his words came true and how Christ fulfills them. So we study Advent through the book of Isaiah. A word on Advent. Advent, of course, is just an appearing in, in, in the season of Advent is us, our, our anticipation of Christ's appearing. There's three things, reasons really why I think celebrating Advent is important. Some churches don't, and that's okay. But here's one of the reasons why I think we should. First, Advent helps us to imagine our Bibles. If you think about it, most of our Bibles are from the perspective of people waiting for Jesus. 
the bulk of your Bible is the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, most of them were waiting, hoping, trusting in God's promises to come true in Jesus. Though they might not have known the form or the shape or the name, they trusted God in the fulfillment of His purposes and His covenant. And so when we celebrate Advent, when we, when we have candles, light our wreath, and we think about the words of the prophets, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus and we anticipate along with them, we get flesh on the bones of our Bible in a way that helps us understand it and see it and feel it. So Advent helps us imagine our Bible, and it secondly helps us to excite our joy. You can't deny that during this season, there's a heightened sense of joy and gladness around Christmas. And some of that is brought about by the holiday commercialization of it, and there's decoration and Christmas songs all the time on the radio, and if you're the kind of person who plays them on Thanksgiving, well, you're part of my family, so you're welcome. But this is, this is a season in which all the world recognizes and takes part in. But for Christians, the joy of the season is all the more. Because it's not just gearing up for the holidays, the time off work, or the time with family, or the presents to receive if you're a child. But it's the joy of knowing that our Redeemer has come. It's the joy of knowing that the promises of God were made true. So not only do we get to imagine our Bibles and feel them and see them in a real way as we consider the expectations and the longings of those in the Old Covenant, but our own joys are excited that those covenant are fulfilled in Christ. And lastly, we, we celebrate Advent because it helps us to fix our hope on Christ. We celebrate Advent because not only do we remember and celebrate His first coming, but in Advent we also look forward to the second coming. And that is our blessed hope, as the New Testament puts it. So for all these reasons and, and many more, we celebrate Advent and Isaiah is going to help us see through the lens of Judah and the prophecies and judgment how we can celebrate the birth of our Savior. In the book of Isaiah, three characters emerge on stage. And each one of these characters will work and fulfill God's will and God's word in the midst of his people. Isaiah is the prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. You'll remember from our Old Testament narratives, once they were into exile, the northern kingdom, Israel, went into captivity. And the southern kingdom, Judah, also later went into captivity under the Assyrians. And Isaiah is brought up as a prophet to speak to them, both before and the whole book covers during this exile. But three characters here emerge. The first, which we'll study this morning, is the Davidic king. It's the promise of one who would come to redeem, to rescue, and to establish the righteous rule of God over God's people. He comes from the line of David. He is the king, and he works on behalf of God. The second character to emerge on the stage of Isaiah is that of the servant of the Lord. In the middle of the book of Isaiah, we see a servant emerge, a picture of a servant who suffers for his people. And lastly, we see a messenger of God, the third character, one who comes to speak and to do 
what God's mission has called him to do. And in these three pictures, these three characters, though Isaiah might not have fully seen and understood them to be the same, the Bible teaches us, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus becomes the fulfillment. In fact, Jesus becomes this promised ruler, this suffering servant, and God's messenger to God's people. He establishes the kingdom of the people of God. And so we trust that as we study, we see Jesus exalted. In fact, Jesus becomes for us both prophet, priest, and king as we consider these characters from the word of Isaiah. This morning, like I said, we'll study the Davidic king. Before we speak more, turn to chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And then we'll go to 11. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9, that we pick up in the middle of a, of a word. He says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every booth of the trampling warrior and the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To give us, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of this government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now turn to chapter 11. In the midst of the Assyrians, God cutting down with one fell swoop all those who'd come against his people, he gives this prophecy, again of the Davidic king. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his hips, breath of his hips, he shall lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. 
The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead the people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Now there's a lot there in the book of Isaiah and just these two chapters that we can't unpack fully. We're going to leave a lot here on the table, and I want to encourage you to do your own study, perhaps, this advent of fully looking at what Isaiah is talking about here. But I want to draw our attention, of course, to those familiar passages in chapters 9 and 11, particularly there in chapter 9 of verse 6 and 7, and of chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 10. This is the prophecy concerning the Davidic king. Now, this prophecy, of course, is because Judah is now in captivity under Assyria. And there needs to be a rescuer, someone to make a way for God's people to return back to the land. And there are many who will come along the way of God's people to try to do that. But ultimately, God will provide the way. And he will raise up a king who will rule in this new era of God's deliverance. And this is the Davidic king, the one who comes from the line of David. Remember, God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to establish on his throne one who would remain forever, whose kingdom would have no end. That language is reiterated again here in this same prophecy. We fast forward to the new covenant, of course, and we learn that Jesus is the son of David. The very book of the New Testament, Matthew, begins with Jesus, the son of God, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Jesus will be the promised ruler. He will be the king spoken of here that will act as God's king for God's people. And he will establish justice and peace over his kingdom. He does this first by taking on the form of a human. He, he takes the human kind into his own subsistence. He becomes like us is born of the virgin. 
But he grows into a man, suffers, and he dies. And he becomes a king. Not like one would expect a king, but a king nonetheless. He both wears a crown on the cross, and God exalts him on the third day and sits him at his right hand, where he now rules and makes intercession. So, this side of the covenant, we know Jesus is the king of whom Isaiah speaks. But if you're reading Isaiah for the first time and you consider yourself like the Israelite under captivity, hoping and waiting and trusting that God would do what he is promising, you read these words with such anticipation. My hope is that we can come alongside of these brothers and sisters under the old covenant and see with new eyes the fulfillment of that promise that he makes to them here and be all the more grateful and joyful for the promise delivered. So the question we'll explore is, who is this king? We know his name, we know it's Christ, but what will this king be like? Well, quickly, there's three things that the king does. First, we notice that the king does God's will. The king does God's will. In the first seven verses, notice who performs the work. In verse 1, we see the pronoun he. In the former time, he brought unto contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Nathali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. It is, it is he, that is the Lord God, who has both brought judgment and will bring out of judgment God's people. In verses 3 and 4, we see again the second person, you. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For you, Lord, have multiplied the nation, and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with a joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil, for the yoke is his burden, and the staff or his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, for you have broken as on the day of Midian. Again, even in verse 6, the beginning of verse 6, there's a passive voice that this child is given by God. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. So God, the Lord, provides this ruler. And if there was still any doubt, of course, in verse 7, we see that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the, the king here is given by God, but serves God in order to do his will. The emphasis in Isaiah's mind is not particularly on the king and what he does, but on God and how he acts through the king. Again, Isaiah might not have any full understanding that this is Jesus who would be God in the flesh. But as king, ruler, deliverer of God's people, he knows that he will serve God first and foremost because it is God who does the work. And so this ruler is seen then primarily as an extension of God's rule. As he submits himself to God and carries out its plan and purposes for God, according to his word and his way. So the primary calling of the king is to submit himself to the Lord as he rules. Therefore, he is an extension of God as he submits himself to God over his people. So the king submits himself to God and does God's will. Friends, I want us to be comforted by this truth, 
that God will do the work himself. He has brought about the work, and he has finished and accomplished the work. It is he who brings about the king. It is he who works through the king, and it is he who now works in us and through us in light of the king. The king is not unimportant, but even Jesus would tell us he has come to do the Father's will. He points us to the Father. We are reconciled to God through Christ. God himself will do the work to redeem and rescue his people. But not simply on the large scale of our own salvation, but God does the work himself in our lives in all sorts of trials and troubles. God himself will do the work. Then question, will that work ever go undone? If God has set himself to the task of doing the work on behalf of his people, will the work ever go undone? No. God commits himself to his people and has made a promise to his people. He will always fulfill it, and it will never be a promise unfulfilled. There will never be a stone unturned. God will do it in his own timing and in his own way, but he will never leave a promise unfulfilled. He will never leave the work undone. Second question we may ask then rhetorically is it will it not then be for our good? If God does the work himself and he fulfills every promise he makes to his people, will then whatever he does and whatever the work may be, will it not then be always for our good? He brings judgment and discipline among his people in order that he may humble them and draws them out of captivity and judgment and discipline in order that he may exalt them Both judgment and exaltation, exile and deliverance, is to put on display God's mercy and God's glory for our good. He doesn't harm us, though he may discipline us. He does not condemn us, though at times we may be judged. He was always working for our good because he has covenanted with his people for it. Therefore, friends, will we ever assume that God is disinterested in us or in our lives? If if God will go about doing the work himself and deliver for his people a child to be born, the line of David, who who would redeem his people and bear the government on his shoulders, ruling over God's people, does this mean then that he would ever be disinterested in us, even if the matter seems small or insignificant? Of course not. The comfort we take in a truth like this is that God draws near to those who have even the slightest of issues. That we remind our child that even if he's upset because he stubbed his toe, God cares and God loves. Just as we speak to the difficult situations in our lives we all can think of, God is also near to us and not unconcerned about the smaller, more trivial matters of our life. Our anxieties, our trials, sometimes our silly impositions, God is not disinterested. But because he has committed himself to do the work and provide for his people, that means that in every area of our life, whether we think it's significant or not, God is concerned with it. And he is working in the midst of it for our good. He will not leave it undone, but commit himself to its fulfillment and its purpose. Ultimately, we look to Jesus, who is this Davidic king who has come to do the Father's will. He says in John chapter 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. The king here, Jesus, has said, it is not my will that I have come to accomplish or to fulfill, but it is the will of him who sent me. It is my father's will that I am to accomplish. It is his mission. It is his purposes that I have come to perform. Not my own. Of course, he says in the garden, just before his arrest and his crucifixion, he prays in Luke 22, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was so committed to the will of the Father in perfect submission to his purposes that he lays his own life down for the sake of those who he is called to rule. Not many kings of nations will do that. They will exhaust all of their armies and all of their strength before they find themselves on the field. They might surrender and give over their territories and their their possessions and their treasures before their own life is taken or their own blood is spilled. But Jesus here shows his resolve to bend himself to the will of the Father, even if it means the Father will crush him under the weight of sin in wrath. This is a king who, like Isaiah says, submits himself to God. The king who, who bears upon his own shoulders the burden of his people in the rod of his oppressor. And God breaks the oppression of his people by placing on the king the rod of oppression. And the only way this is done is because Jesus did not succumb to temptation, to skirt the cross, but bowed to the will of the Father. His commitment to do God's will shows that he is the Davidic king, the promised king Isaiah speaks of. The second thing the Davidic king does, not only is God's will, but he reflects God's nature. The king does God's will And reflects God's nature. And again in verse 6. This child is given to us by the Lord. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name it says. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Now these names don't necessarily mean or imply that this king is divine. That's typically the the way this passage is read, and of course, when we think about it in terms of Jesus fulfilling it, we know Christ is divine. And so often we read Christ's divinity into this passage, and I I don't think that's right. These names here are not pointing to the king's divinity, but rather to his close relationship to divinity. Remember, the king is to be an extension of God, not to be God himself, at least in Isaiah's mind, as he writes and records these prophecies. That we know Jesus to fulfill this prophecy as the Son of God, as the Divine One. These names don't point to His divinity, but to His relationship to divinity. See, the rule of God can be seen and is to be felt and experienced through and in the rule of the King. Because the will and the ways of the King 
are completely subservient to the Lord. If the king is to do all God's will, then his rule, perfect, is to be seen as God's rule. His will is to be seen as God's will. His ways, subservient to the Lord's, are seen through the king's rule and way. So the king here is to point the people to God through his rule and his reign. And so his name, as often in this context and in this situation, names bearing much meaning and pointing to the significance of their actions, is to point us to God, not to the king himself. As one commentator puts it, quote, within the context of Isaiah, the sight of an upright king ruling in Zion bears witness to God as the unsurpassable planner who has worked out his own plans wonderfully while foiling the plans of the nations, as the mighty God who can save a remnant from the fiercest foe, as an everlasting father who has shown his fatherly care and rule never cease, and as the prince or ruler of peace who brings about lasting peace unlike those rulers at the time of Isaiah, end quote. So these names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, is to be God's character, God's nature seen in and through the king. Not to deify this person, but to resemble and reflect Christ, or sorry, the father who sent him. It is God who is at the forefront. He commits the work to his people. He sends the king, the king reflects the Lord. Of course, the New Testament fulfills this. This picture of Jesus as the Davidic king goes further because Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. It says in verse 3 of chapter 1, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So Jesus comes as the king, though he is in the exact imprint of his nature, reflects glory and honor to the Father as he has committed himself to do in his life and in his death. And in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 19, he says that he is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the image of the invisible God, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Christ is the very nature of God personified. He is the, what we would say, second person of the Trinity. He is God in the flesh. The Apostle John writes in his gospel, the Word was in the beginning, became flesh and dwells among us. So Jesus is in the flesh God. And he is the exact imprint of the nature of God, the radiance of his glory. And so radiate means to Bring out or to send forth the glory of God. He is filled with the image of the invisible God and that we might see him or see God in him. Where do we learn this? Later on in the Gospel of John, we learn that Jesus and the Father are one. John chapter 14, verses 8 through 11. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. What Jesus is saying here is that he has come to showcase the glory and the beauty of God's mercy and kindness. And though he does this through his own works, he primarily does this by taking on himself flesh, though he is God. This is a mystery. I can't explain it to you any further than this because I myself don't understand it any better than that. But Jesus is one with the Father who has come and taken on flesh to show for us who the Father is. He is distinct in his personhood, yet he is the same with God. Jesus is the one with the Father, the exact imprint of his nature, the image of the invisible God. And so like the Davidic king here in chapter 9 of Isaiah, he shows what God is like through his reign, through his works, through his justice. And so we can rightly look to Christ and say, Isaiah speaks of him, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Jesus, of course, is our prince of peace, but it is what God has worked in Christ as Christ submits himself to the will of the Father, even through obedience to the point of death. This doesn't minimize the perfection and the beauty of Christ, but exalts what God has done in Christ for us. It puts on display God's mercy and God's character And that's what the king is to represent. A right king, a just king, and a perfect king represents the God who placed him in power. And so the king here does God's will and reflects God's character. And lastly, in chapter 11, he bears God's spirit. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of wisdom or knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he shall delight in the fear of the Lord. God's spirit comes to rest on this king. He rules and reigns by power of the spirit. He is given the spirit by God that he might rule both wisely and justly. We see that this wisdom is what comes to characterize the rule and reign of this king. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight there is in the fear. Of course, we learn from Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So this king here rules in perfect wisdom and insight and counsel because he has been given and equipped by the spirit to love, serve, and lead God's people to the Lord. He is to rule wisely as God himself is wisdom, and he is to rule justly as God himself is just and righteous. In fact, just do a survey of some of the things that we see that this this king would be. In verse 7 of chapter 9, he is to establish the kingdom and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward and evermore. Chapter 11, verses 3 through 5. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Even in chapter 16, verse 5, another passage about the Davidic king. It says, 
Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. And lastly, verse 1 of chapter 32 of Isaiah. Again, of this Davidic king, it says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. The theme, then, of this king's rule, this king who comes from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, one who comes from the branch and bears fruit, is one who rules in wisdom and in justice or righteousness and upholds the character of the kingdom and truth. See, justice is at the heart of God. Justice is at the heart of God. In fact, go to Isaiah chapter 5, and this whole book begins with an issue of justice because of the corruption that takes place in Judah, particularly verses 15 through 16 of chapter 5, what God will do among his people. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. So what's happening? Is that God shows himself to be righteous and justice and to be opposed to injustice, pride, and corruption. And part of the judgment that's visited upon Israel and Judah is because of the corruption and the pride, the hubris of the nation. And so God will lower them, lower their pride, and humble them. And then he will bring them out of this captivity and judgment and establish them with a king who rules justly as he is just. Righteously as he is righteous. The king himself will said to be holy because God is holy. And all of this because he bears the spirit of God. Well, Jesus, of course, we know was led by the spirit. In fact, Luke tells us in chapter 4, verse 1, that he was full of the Holy Spirit. When he was baptized by John, the Spirit came and descended upon him. The Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And he goes forth led by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, to be tempted in the wilderness and relies on the Holy Spirit in his own temptation. In fact, all of his ministry here on earth was guided and sustained by his dependence on the Spirit. You might think that Jesus pulled the God card every time he wanted to do a miracle. But in actuality, he depended himself on God and the provision of the Spirit in all matters. This is part of what Philippians means when it says that he counted equality with God a thing not to be grasped. He set aside the use of his divine prerogative and relied fully on the Spirit in perfection like the right Davidic ruler would. So Sinclair Ferguson, a theologian, puts it this way really succinctly. I, I thought it was helpful. The Spirit of God, we read about here in Isaiah, was present and active at Christ's conception as the head of the new creation by whom he was appointed at baptism, who directed him through his temptations, empowered him in his miracles, energized him in his sacrifice, and vindicated him in his resurrection. The Spirit was with Christ every step of the way from his conception to his death, to his resurrection. And he is sent to us by both the Father and the Son that dwells now within us. Jesus was given God's Spirit 
that he might rule over his people, first by laying down his life, but now through justice over his people through the spirit he has given to us. Ultimately, God's justice is displayed through Christ by his own death on the cross. Jesus demonstrates the justice of God not by defeating the enemies himself, but by becoming like his enemies, that is, like us, sinners, rebellious against the righteousness of God, and takes on God's wrath and justice against sin. You understand that a holy God must pay sin. He must deal with it. It must be accounted for. And the only way for sinners like us to be reconciled to God is for our sin to be accounted for, and Christ himself reconciles us to God. God's justice, righteousness, and holiness is seen as he pours out his wrath against sin on the cross of Christ. Jesus himself, who at one time had borne the Spirit, now bears the wrath of God for our sin. But his justice alone is not on the cross, but so is his mercy. The mercy of God is also seen in full display because it was for us that the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. It was for us that Jesus takes on the just penalty, that is, death, condemnation, and wrath, so that we would experience the kindness and the mercy of God. And he does this because he is the good and righteous king who has laid down his life for his own people, led by the Spirit, dependent upon the Spirit, given himself to us through the Spirit. God's justice is satisfied. God's mercy is on display. In his own life, Jesus confronted injustices. And in fact, when he returns again, we read in Revelation 19 that he will issue justice and righteousness on behalf of his people. We read about the great white throne, judgment coming, where he enacts judgment righteously. In fact, the rider of the white horse will come and issue justice, judgment righteously on behalf of his people. And so Isaiah's Davidic ruler here as we conclude, is anticipating both the first and the second coming of Christ, in which the kingdom of God is inaugurated and then fully consummated and established in the new heavens and new earth. What I want us to see in these two chapters from the view that we've been able to take this morning is that Jesus not only is the fulfillment of the promise of a Davidic ruler, but is for us our king over the people of God. That he isn't just somebody who checked a box that meets the requirements, but that he possesses all the authority a king would possess and all the treasures that a king rightly deserves. He rules perfectly under God's will and does all that God has sent him to do. He has borne the wrath of God as he has borne the Spirit of God. And he leads his people to God reconciling us as sinners made righteous through his work. This is our king. We trust God to follow this king. We depend on the spirit to follow this king. We look to the sacrifice of the cross that we might likewise submit ourselves to this king as he leads us in righteousness to God. All of this, friends, shows us that the promises contained in Isaiah that the Davidic king is fulfilled in Christ and that he rules and reigns even now over his people. It is worthy of our worship 
in our adoration. Let's pray. Father, there is too much left unsaid, and I pray, God, that conversation over this day and week and month will be filled with time spent seeing more fully just how perfect Jesus is as a ruler and how perfect his kingdom and his kingship is, how grateful we might be to be numbered among his people, a citizen of his kingdom. Lord, help us to see this more fully as we satisfy, Lord, or we celebrate the, the cross this morning and Christmas this month and celebrate, God, all that you have done in and through us. We look to King Jesus. We look to the righteousness he has given to us. We rely on the spirit he has sent for us. We trust in the work he has performed for us. We celebrate, God, the redemption he has accomplished for us. And all this, Lord, we give thanks to you who sent him. He was born a child, yet he was crowned a king, our king. Lord, we love you. We pray for this and much more in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. lonely exile here Until the Son of God appears Oh, come thou day spring from on high. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.